John chapter 18, we're going to begin at verse 1, just to sort of set the stage a little bit for you. John has spent the last five chapters, John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, in the upper room. Five chapters devoted to what Jesus did with his disciples in one place, in one room. Now that time is over and they're ready to leave the upper room and go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where as I said before, as soon as they take one step out of that upper room towards the garden, it's like one domino falls and the rest of them are going to fall, leading to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of God the Son. John chapter 18, beginning now at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The the Gospel of John is sort of fascinating in this respect. John just spent five chapters in the upper room, but didn't describe the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now he takes Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane, but John doesn't even name it as the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew and Mark do that. And he doesn't even tell us anything about the agonized prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that from the other Gospels? That when Jesus went to this garden, in agonized prayer, he poured out his heart before God, asking that if there was any way that this cup This destiny that was in his next few hours of going to the cross and enduring not only the rejection and the suffering at the hands of man, but becoming the very target of the wrath of God himself as a substitute for you and I. He asked that if there was any way that cup of suffering would be taken away from him. Yet nevertheless, he surrendered himself utterly to the will of his God and Father in heaven. John doesn't tell us anything about that agonized prayer. He skips over right to the arrest. So as Jesus comes to the garden, we notice here, verse three, then Judas, having received the detachment of troops and officers, Judas came to this garden. Now John tells us that Jesus met there often with his disciples. It was a familiar place. Jesus went right where Judas was expecting him to go because Jesus wanted to be found by Judas. Jesus knew that this would fulfill the plan of God the Father, so he did it all according to plan. He went to the place where he knew Judas would find him. Judas came, notice the words in the text in verse 3, with a detachment of troops and officers. And I don't mean to get into the whole technicalities of the original language, but what John is telling us is that Judas came with both Roman troops... That means a detachment of troops. By the way, in the literal, and we don't know if John's speaking a little bit metaphorically or literally here, in the literal, this would be hundreds of Roman troops. Now, I don't know if it was hundreds, but it was a lot. Otherwise, he wouldn't have used that word. 
many Roman troops and, when he uses the word officers, he's referring there to sort of the temple security force. So there's a group of Roman soldiers, there's a group of Jewish soldiers, they come together to the Garden of Gethsemane with a great big show of force. Friends, don't you see that Judas... Judas not only misunderstood the nature of Jesus, thinking that Jesus might fight back, but he also misunderstood, or maybe I should say misestimated, made a bad estimation of the power of Jesus. He thought that Jesus might want to fight, so he brought a lot of soldiers. But friends, if Jesus wanted to fight, how many soldiers would be enough? You couldn't have enough. And so he didn't understand the nature of Jesus. He didn't understand the power of Jesus. And they were going to meet together there in the garden. Friends, do you understand what's going on here? A sinless man was in an appointed garden and was about to do battle with Satan's representative. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? A sinless man in an appointed garden about to do battle with Satan's representative. The first time that happened, the human race fell in the Garden of Eden. Now the second time it happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, God's going to take it back. God's going to make sure that this sinless man wins the battle that the first Adam lost. Now verse 4. Jesus, therefore knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Did you notice this? First of all, Jesus, knowing all, all things that would come upon him. This was no mystery to Jesus. He wasn't caught by surprise in the slightest. When that large, well, let's just call it a small army. It was a large SWAT team. It was a small army that came to arrest Jesus. When those soldiers came to the Garden of Gethsemane, friends, don't miss those words in verse four where it says, Jesus went forward and said to them. Can you imagine their surprise? You see, they were expecting some uh, Galilean peasant to be hiding behind the trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. They expected to bring a lot of soldiers because you'd have to really search for the guy over a lot of hills and around a lot of trees. They brought a full show of force for whatever might happen. But when they came to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus went out to meet them. Here I am. Now's the time. Bring it on. I'm ready for this. Matter of fact, not only did Jesus go out to meet them, but he said to them in verse 4, whom are you seeking? Jesus took the lead. Now, he did this for at least two reasons. First of all, he wanted any potential violence at the Garden of Gethsemane to be directed towards him and not his disciples. Friend, there's something I've seen and studying through it this time that I've never really noticed it before, and maybe you already have in reading through this passage, but, but I'll tell you what I just noticed that I never noticed before, at the lengths that Jesus went to to protect his disciples at the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Do you see him leaving them behind in the shade and the shadows and that full moon night of the Garden of Gethsemane? And he steps forward and Jesus says, who are you looking for? Come on now, announce your attentions. Forget about them. Put your focus upon me. But that's not the only reason. Jesus also wanted Judas and the detachment of troops to announce their evil intention. Jesus says, let's put it all on the table right now. Who are you looking for? And look at their response right there in verse 5. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Friends, I just want to remind you of something. Again, you probably already know this. Forgive me for repeating it, but I find it of some significance. Jesus' name, so to speak, was Jesus of Nazareth. He did not identify himself by his birthplace. He didn't say Jesus of Bethlehem. He did not identify himself by his father. He didn't say Jesus ben Joseph, who was to be assumed his father. We know it was his adopted father. He didn't identify himself by his profession. It wasn't Jesus the carpenter or later Jesus the rabbi. No, Jesus' name. I know it's sort of a dumb image, but on his business card, it would say Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what's interesting about that? Nazareth was a despised place. When those representatives of the Roman and the Jewish world called out and they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't mean it as a compliment. They meant it as a way to diminish it. Jesus didn't mind that at all. And can I remind you of something today? That in parts of the Arab world today, Christians are still called Nazrani or Nazarites. And when they call Christians Nazrani or Nazarites, they don't mean it as a compliment. They mean it as a way to sort of um, put Christians down. Christians in the Arab world normally, I'm not going to say absolutely, but normally they don't refer to themselves that way, but it's those who are usually against them, who want to put them down a notch or two, who refer to them with that language. Matter of fact, that name beginning with the letter, what we would call the letter N, which they would call Nun, It's used to mark Christians or their property, oftentimes for persecution or even death. Christians are still identified with Jesus of Nazareth and oftentimes in terms of persecution. Well, when they said this, who are you looking for? And Jesus, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Notice how Jesus replies in verse 5. Jesus says, I am. Now, please notice this, friends. He didn't say, I am he. You could put a great big strike through, through those letters, he. Because if you look in your English translation here, the words he is in italics, which means it was added by the translators. Jesus did not say three words, I am he. He said two words, I am, which in the ancient language is ego It's a word that's very consciously proclaims that Jesus is God and it connects him to many previous I am statements used in the gospel of John. Now again, I just want you to understand this. 
The soldiers came thinking that they might need to chase down a fleeing suspect. And as they came to that shadowy olive orchard, the Garden of Gethsemane, they were confronted not only by a man who came out and said, who are you looking for? But a man who when replied, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he replied, I am. And he replied, not only in terms of identifying himself, but expressing his deity. He spoke to them as if he were God. And did you notice what happened? Look at verse 6. Look at it carefully. Now, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you let the movie play in your mind here? Are you envisioning this? Jesus there at the Garden of Gethsemane. The whole exchange works like this. They can see the torches and the lanterns of this armed group coming to get Jesus. As they draw near to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus walks out to meet them. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And what happens to those soldiers? They all fall back to the ground, Judas included. Now, there are some people who think that this was just an accident, That there was something about the force of Jesus' character that made them all kind of step back. And because they were together as a group of troops, they just sort of stumbled over each other. I don't think so, friends. I think there was something definitely miraculous about this. That there was a display of the power and the presence of God and they all fell over. What's significant about that? Well, first of all, doesn't it show us that Jesus is completely in control of this situation? Jesus did not go to the cross as a victim. He went there voluntarily. When when, when Jesus said, I am, and they all fell back, Jesus could have just kept saying, I am, I am, I am, and they stay on the ground, and he got out of there. It would have been an easy escape while they were all on the ground. No, it shows that Jesus was in absolute control of the um, place there. But this is what else I want you to see. Friends, isn't that a display of the glory of Jesus? A pretty powerful one. Yet, Jesus displays his glory here, right here in the context of a place where he's going to submit to the handcuffs. Now, I know they didn't have handcuffs in that day, but they had some way to bind the hands of a prisoner, because Jesus says in just a few moments that he's going to be bound He's submitting his hands for the handcuffs, and just before he does it, he says, I am, and they all fall back. And this shows us something about the power and the glory of God. Friends, it's something that you and I have to struggle with all the time, that many times God displays his glory in the context of something very humble. What's humble here? What's humble is the Son of God is submitting himself to handcuffs and custody and arrest. That's humble. What's glorious? He says two words and they all fall back on their rear ends. That this is God's pattern. You see, Jesus was born as a humble baby, but he was announced by angels. He was laid in a manger, but he was signaled by a star. He submitted to baptism as if he were a sinner, but then he heard the divine voice of approval from heaven. Jesus slept when he was tired, but then he awoke up to calm the storm. He wept at a grave, but then he called the dead to life. He surrendered to arrest, but then he said, I am, and they all fell over. He died on a cross, but there he defeated sin and death and Satan. Don't ever be afraid when God is allowing some of your weakness, some of your humility to show. 
because he might just be setting it up for a beautiful display of his glory. That's just oftentimes how God works. He wants to display his glory in the midst of weakness, in the midst of humility. There's one other thing I want you to think about. Why did Jesus do this to display his glory? Why did he knock them down? We'll look at that in just a moment. Take a look now at verse 7. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Now, by the way, I picture that, that they're bracing themselves the next time he says that. I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. So Jesus asked them again. He didn't want the soldiers to panic. Listen, Jesus foremost in his mind, was protecting those 11 disciples with him. He didn't want the soldiers panicked. He didn't want the swords flashing. He didn't want the spears thrusting. He wanted to keep things calm. So as they brought themselves to their feet once again, he says, wait, 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 guys, let's come back to this again. Who are you seeking? You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. I am the one. But now look at it in verse nine, excuse me, verse eight. If you seek me, Let these go their way. You want me? You got me. Let these go. Ladies and gentlemen, why did Jesus knock down that arresting army with a voice to display his power, to display his authority, but not on his own behalf? Jesus was going to surrender. If he's going to surrender to him, why not surrender to him before he knocked him down? No, he knocked him down to let them know, if you don't let these 11 go, I'll keep knocking you down all day long. What's really on my heart, you let them go. You've got me, let these go their way. Every one of those 11 disciples, except for the disciple John, the apostle John, would later die for their faith. Everyone except for John would be tested to the extremity and be ready to lay down their life. But this is what Jesus knew as a faithful shepherd. He knew they weren't ready for that yet. So let them go. Can I encourage you with this, brother, sister? Jesus knows what you're ready for now and he knows what you're ready for later. It's not like Jesus said, oh, no, 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 I want it to always be easy and good and, and roses and, and, and bubble baths for these 11 disciples. No, 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 let's make it always, no, no, no. He knew they were gonna die, but not then. They weren't ready then. And Jesus would not allow them to be tested beyond what they were ready at that time. So let these go. He has that same wisdom in dealing with you as his disciple. He knows what you can take, what you can't. And I know sometimes that seems strange to us because, Lord, surely you have misunderstood in my situation. But listen, when I say that Jesus knows what you can take, he knows what you can take relying upon him, upon his strength and his presence in your life. So he says, let them go. By the way, I think this was also a signal to the disciples Get out of here. Go. And that's when they left. 
That's when they left and left Jesus all alone with that arresting disciple. Friends, Jesus protects his disciples. If trouble comes, they will be ready for that trouble, and he knows it. Now verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. We know that from Luke chapter 22 that the disciples sometimes carried swords with them. It was just self-defense. You could say they had concealed carry permits in that day. And they carried swords for their own defense. And here they were. Peter draws the sword. Peter said to the disciples, get out of here, guys. Leave, leave. Now's your chance. Peter faltering. I said I'd never deny him. I got to prove good on that word. I I can't deny him. He rushes out. And what does he do? He swipes. Notice, not at one of the soldiers, but at the servant of the high priest. His name was Malchus. He swipes at one of the high priest servants, and what does he do? He cuts off his ear, which was a bummer to Malchus, no doubt, but it's hardly a death wound, is it? It's a pretty lame way to defend your Messiah against a couple hundred troops. Here's the other thing, too. It can't be proven. Please understand what I'm going to say. It can't be proven. We'll have to wait and get the video replay when we get to heaven on this one to find out for sure. But Peter, like almost everybody in his day, would have used a sword in his right hand. Does everybody get that? Now, if he's facing Malchus, what would it take for Peter to cut off his right ear? It's not impossible, but it would be pretty tough because it would be on the opposite side of his head. No, it's much more logical that if Peter was going to cut off his right ear, that Peter would be what? Behind Malchus where his right ear was accessible by his right hand. It's entirely possible, we won't know for sure until we get to the videotape in heaven, but that Peter swung the sword at this guy from behind, which was not exactly Mr. Courage in action. I'm going to pick out a guy who's not even a soldier, but a civilian, probably unarmed, and I'm going to swipe at him from behind, and even with that, the best I'm going to do is going to cut off his ear. Now, John doesn't tell us that Jesus healed it. By the way, there's something just sort of fascinating I just need to throw out as a little aside. All of the Gospels tell us that this happened. John is the only one who tells us that Peter did it. I think there was a bit of a rivalry between John and Peter. Good-natured. Just the kind of thing that there is often among men. You know, you get in a little dig at your brother there. You love him. That's why you put in a little dig at him. John doesn't miss a few opportunities to kind of stick it to Peter in a few situations. And this seems to be one of them. All of the Gospels mention that it happened. Only John says it was Peter. And only John says that that when he cut off his right ear. But John doesn't tell us that Jesus healed it. He says, well, I assume you read that in the other Gospels. (laughs) So this lame attempt to deliver Jesus falls flat And then he says in verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. No, I'm not praising you for this, Peter. Put your sword away. Stop it. I have to drink the cup that the Father has appointed to me. Now verse 13. They led him away to Annas first, 
for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So they took him to this man, Annas, first. Annas was not officially the high priest, but he was the power behind the throne. He had held the high priesthood some years before, and four of his sons and one of his son-in-law held the title of high priest. He was the guy who put everybody into power. So they brought him, excuse me, they brought to him Jesus first. Now notice, the son-in-law, who was Caiaphas, who Jesus is going to go to next, says, Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. John here is referring back to something that he indicated in John chapter 11, verse 29, that this man Caiaphas, who was the official high priest, his father-in-law held the real power, but he was the official high priest. Caiaphas was the man who made this statement. It's expedient, it's smart that one man die for all the people. Now, on the one sense, this was an unknowing prophecy because isn't that how it happened? Didn't Jesus die for his people? Didn't one man die as a substitute, not only for his people of that day, but through all time? Yes, that's how it was. It was expedient. It was an unknowing prophecy. But I want you to look at just in the cold calculation of what Caiaphas said. His thinking was logical, but it was not moral. Do you understand what I mean by that? Logically, is it smart that one man die for the many? Isn't it smart to understand that the good of the many outweighs the good of the one? So if you can kill one and save the many, that's much better. Friends, that's logical thinking, but it's not moral thinking. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is a spotless Messiah. You don't put together an innocent man knowingly just to satisfy many other people. His thinking was logical, but it was not moral. Before I go on to my next point, would you indulge me just to make a very quick application here about things that are logical but not moral? Sometimes we run against those things in our life. Sometimes we experience things that logic says, yeah, do this for sure, but it goes against God's command It's not what God commands. And if you'll give me the liberty to do it, I'll speak it out. This applies in one big area that people experience today. With couples, a man and a woman living together outside of marriage. Living together and they're not married. A man and a woman living together and you're not married. I understand why that might be logical to you. Oh, no, I could give you four or five reasons why it's totally logical that we live together even though we're not married. It's not moral. It's not what God says you should do. Now, why do I pick that out when I could pick out a lot of examples? Look, if you're living together and attending this church, um, I'm not angry with you. We love you. We're really glad that you come to our church. We want you to grow in Jesus Christ. But let me just tell you flat out, we want you to get this area right with God. More importantly, God wants you to get this area right with him. And what we say is, we are here to help you. 
We genuinely are. Talk to us. Call the church office. Make an appointment. We're not angry with you. We love you. We care about you. But we want to help you get this right with God. And we'll just sit down together and pray through it and figure out the best way and the most expedient way to do it. But friends, you can't just say something's logical, therefore it's moral. No, we got to see what God says and live our lives accordingly. Continuing on now, verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Simon Peter followed Jesus, but so did another disciple. Almost everybody understands that this other disciple was John. And John was somehow known to the family of the high priest. They bring him in. Then John says, hey, this guy, let him come in as well. Peter's following from afar. Look at what happens here at verse 17. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, are you not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers who made a fire of coals stood there for it was cold And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Okay, do you get the scene? The disciples flee. John and Peter sort of double back and come to where they knew Jesus was going. Maybe they watched where they were going from afar, and they came and said, we got to see what happens to Jesus. we got to see if we can help him. And so what happens? John says, well, he's at the house of the high priest. I know people there. So, So John goes in, says to the servant, yeah, I'm John. Oh, yeah, fine. Go ahead. You can go in. And then he goes through, and Peter comes up to the door, and the girl's not going to let him in. And John says, oh, no, no, he's fine. Let him in. The girl looks at Peter and says, you're not one of his disciples also, are you? Notice the word also in that verse. She knew that John was one of his disciples. It's as if she's saying this, not another one of you guys, are you? And what does Peter say? Notice what he says in response. He says, verse 17, I am not. I don't think this was a planned, calculated denial of Jesus. I don't think Peter said, man, if anybody asks me about Jesus, no way. I'm not associating myself with him. What was it? It was the surprise. It was the spur of the moment. I don't think he expected a servant girl standing at a gate door Tell me if you're really a follower of Jesus. So what did he do? Unprepared for that battle, he failed in that moment. He failed because he refused to associate himself with Jesus, whom he said was his master and his savior. Friends, I feel a little bad because we have to leave the text right here at verse 18 and wait till next week to see The thing that happens that will shock Peter and John and let them know that everything has changed with what they thought was going to happen to Jesus. At this point, all they knew was that Jesus was in their custody, and I bet they're thinking and they're hoping maybe Jesus gets out of this one. But friends, in the next few verses, something's going to happen that's going to so shock them that they say, no, this is going to be far worse than any of us ever imagined. Let's leave it with this, though. 
Are we going to be like Peter and even in a casual way deny our association with our Savior? My friends, I hope not a single one of us would do that. But that we would cling to and be strong in our association with our Savior. Jesus is so zealous to protect us, his disciples. How could we ever deny our own association with him? And one more thing before I pray and we conclude. You probably noticed that we have tables of communion up front here. As soon as I pray, our worship team is going to come out and lead us in a couple more songs. As they do that, our tables of communion are going to be open. And we're going to do this not only this Sunday, but for the next four Sundays as well. When we're in these chapters that speak so pointedly about the sacrifice and the suffering of Jesus Christ, we want to come again and again each week and give you the opportunity to come forward and to receive the bread and dip it in the cup. You can stay forward here. You can ask for prayer from the prayer team who will be up here at front as well. Or you can take it back to your seat. But friends, I want us to be all very aware of what Jesus did for us in the yielding of his body and the shedding of his blood and to realize that this is for his people. And if you have put your trust in Jesus, you're welcome to come forward. If you've never done it before, then let this be the act by which you put your trust in the Savior who loves you. And take that piece of bread, dip it in the cup, either partake of it up here in prayerful communion or take it back to your own seat. But we're going to remember what Jesus did for us, not only today, but in the next four weeks. Father in heaven, thank you for sending a Savior to us who was so careful that his people would be protected. And Jesus, I pray that you would do this throughout our congregation. I pray that you would protect your people. I pray those, Lord, who feel that they're being assaulted on every side, I pray that you would give them an extra measure of peace in your protection for them. I pray, Lord, that you would be fully manifested as a faithful Messiah to your people. Lord, I pray as well that as we receive this bread and this cup, that it would be more than a ceremony, but we would actually receive the truth, the power, the goodness, the presence of your substitutionary sacrifice for us. We do this in faith, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.